You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to the Capehart Podcast on Washington Post Live. I am Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor of the Washington Post. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the passing of baseball great and civil rights icon, Jackie Robinson. And there's a new biography of his life that focuses on four distinct years in Robinson's life. It's called True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson and its author, Kostya Kennedy, joins me now. Kostya, welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Wonderful to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Um, so there have been a plethora of movies and documentaries and books dedicated to Jackie Robinson's life and career, but the approach you take is different by focusing on four years, spring 1946, summer 1949, autumn 1956, and winter 1972 uh, in Jackie Robinson's life. Before we talk about those years, why did you structure it that way? Well, as you uh, kind of allude to, but just to make clear, they're, they're distinct years, as you say. They're also metaphorically the spring, summer, autumn, and winter of Robinson's life. Um, and so I wanted a way to sort of look at him in distinct periods. So each year he's a different person in many ways, and the environment around him, which maybe we'll talk a little bit about, but the, the national and local environment around him has changed, and he has changed, and his sort of mission and 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 outlook has changed so it was important to pick those those uh, pick different years and i felt that by doing that i could uncover some things in rich detail without having to go blow by blow um to sort of uh the, the, the filling years in between last thing there's a series of movies called the seven up series by michael apted where we see a cohort of kids first they're seven then they're 14 28 35 and so on that was a bit of an inspiration uh, in thinking about how to how to look at him. So, well, then let's start at 1946. Talk about the significance of that year. Well, it was a huge year, and and in the, the very nice intro pointed out as everybody uh, as is the common feeling uh, that that Jackie broke the color barrier in 1947. That's when he broke into a major league, and that's clearly that year. But in 46 was actually a year when he really began to integrate baseball. He was the only black player for a very short period of time. He had a, uh, a black teammate, uh, but only for a couple of weeks. He was the only black player in an all-white international league. He played for the Montreal Royals, which was the best farm team in the best um, minor league for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that year was critical. Uh, the home games were in Montreal, of course, but most of their road games were in the United States. And it was critical for Robinson along with his wife, Rachel Robinson, who was, who was with him through all of this, uh, to sort of get acclimated to the mission that they were undertaking. Uh, he, he had been a, a successful popular athlete at UCLA, but now he was uh, a, a huge focus of attention. And uh, there was a lot of attention on what he was doing and, and thought and commentary about him. So it was, a, it was a new life for him. And to be able to be in Montreal where it was certainly racism uh, in Montreal, but the black-white divide was much softer in Canada. The divide there was more French, English, or religious. Um, it gave him a way to sort of grow into this role a little bit before 47. And mm. in a, in a, on the baseball field, he was a very raw, extremely talented athlete, but a raw baseball player. Hadn't played that many games. So it also gave him a chance to really get ready for the level of competition he was to face. 
uh, in Broadway since he was off Broadway working out working out the kinks before before hitting exactly. the, the big stage. But it, it, can we talk a little bit more about Montreal? And you said, you know, it's not like there wasn't, he didn't experience racism while he was in Canada, but he was met with warmth and support from, from local fans, wasn't he? Oh, he was absolutely embraced. And I had an opportunity to speak to people who remembered him being there. It's sort of this magical year of, of 1946. It, it's minor league baseball is a very popular team. You know, they're, they're bringing in 15,000 fans, tw it's close to 20,000 fans. Um, and th there were people I spoke to both in the African-American community or the African-Canadian community, and without, recall it as a very, um, as, an, as a sort of beautiful year, a warm year, everybody was together. You know, in that environment, this, his success on the field can never be taken away from his overall success uh, in what he did because he was the person you wanted to watch, whether you were a baseball fan who went to 20 games a year or you were walking to a baseball stadium for the first time, he was a special talent. You could spot him right away. He made the team better. He just brought a lot of excitement. And he was absolutely embraced, so much so, Jonathan, that when toward the end of the year, uh, the Royals, the Montreal Royals, played a team in Louisville for what was called the Little World Series, the Minor League World Series. And when they went down to Louisville for the first three games of that, Robinson was absolutely booed and set upon. It was a really tough time. Those were Jim Crow stands there in the South, and it was um, a very different environment in Montreal. When the team came back up to Montreal for the rest of that World Series, those fans who generally didn't boo at all and were quite polite fans booed every Louisville player <laughs> as they came up because they had heard what happened. And Robinson spoke about how much that meant to him to have the support of the crowd. And so then the next year, he goes into the major leagues. Um, what was that experience like initially for him playing in the major leagues? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I'm going to use it to segue slightly into why I chose 1949, which was three years later. Because 47, when he came in, that year and in 1948, he had sort of agreed along with talking with Branch Rickey, who was the Dodgers general manager who sort of uh, hired Robinson and, and helped uh, work with Robinson to make this happen. Um, he agreed that he was going to not really retaliate or or fight back, uh, turn the other cheek, so to speak, on the ball field. And and that meant, in the face of some vicious verbal um, uh, abuse from opposing uh, players and opposing fans, not all. Again, some people embraced him, but but some certainly did not. But also physical. No player in 1947 or 1948 was hit with a pitch more often than Robinson was. So that was a serious uh, thing. And Robinson would just, you know, get up after he got hit by a pitch and run down to first and not say anything. So that's what it was like when he came into the major leagues. Uh, part of the reason why I focus on 1949 is that was the year that Robinson said, okay. Uh, that's not happening anymore. Uh, they they better be rough on me because I'm going to be rough on them. And he was a player who was known in his short time in the Negro Leagues as being a very active, aggressive player. Uh, there was a teammate who said he was up to his neck in every game. And that's how he was in 49. And it made him go from being a very good player to being the best player alive. He won the most valuable player award. He was the most dominant player in the sport. And part of that was he was really being his true self on the field, uh, more aggressive, 
tough to play against, whether he was black, white, it didn't matter, you know, just a, a difficult opponent. You didn't want to have to defend against him. So um, that was really the transition from when he first came into Ebbets Field on April 15, 1947, and then how we saw him a little bit later in his career. Well, can you talk more about, about his baseball prowess? Give us a sense of how good a player he was, not just the fact that, you know, he was an aggressive player, but his skill on the diamond. Yes, and, and I think that that somehow gets a little bit lost because obviously his impact is far greater than, than that, of course, but it's not divorced from that. Again, the fact that he was so good meant he commanded respect from anybody, right? Uh, he was, while you're talking about his aggressiveness, he was an extremely good base runner. He was very fast, but also really smart on the base path. And that's something that you can see very obviously. That was part of the reason why he was such a great person to take this mission on, because you can see what a good player he is uh, very easily. Uh, but he also, he hit with power. He hit uh, for average. He led the league in, in, in batting in 1949. Uh, he was the best player, not only on the Dodgers, but in all of baseball. And that was true then. That's true now. You know, we have sort of advanced statistics in baseball as we do in everything from measuring um, productivity. And Robinson was clearly the best player. So, uh, And he was also a very good defensive player. And, and that year he was playing second base. He later moved to other positions. Uh, but a strong defensive player, the leader of a team. The, the Dodgers had, a, had the player Pee Wee Reese, who was the captain of the team. But the players saw the pressure that Robinson was under as well as his overall skill. And in many ways, he was really the leader of that team and the player who performance everything um, revolved around. And, and consequently, the Dodgers were an extremely good team that went to the World Series six out of ten years while, while, while Robinson was there. There's so many other questions I, I have related to this, but I want to jump to the other two years before getting into the more, the, 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 the um, 36,000 foot view questions. 1956 um, is the next season. That is the, the autumn of 1956. The significance of that year. Well, so that year he is, it's his last year. It will be end up being his last year as a player in the major leagues. In 1955, which is sort of a famous year in baseball circles, and if, for people who grew up around Brooklyn, 1955 is the one year when the Brooklyn Dodgers beat the Yankees in the World Series. But for Robinson himself, 55 is a very difficult year. He was struggled physically. He didn't play that well. It seemed like he was towards the end of his career. He came back in 56. And he was still compromised um, by physical issues. He, he, he didn't play every day. He had circulate leg issues, um, a various smattering of injuries. And he knew his body was sort of saying, hey, it's time. But he performed sort of very valiantly. He had a very strong year, not to the level of what we were just talking about in 1949, but still a, a very important year to help take the Dodgers to the World Series. They would not have gotten there without him that year. Uh, played tremendously well in really important games. So it was, it was a compelling, just looking at an athlete, it was kind of a compelling year to see that uh, sort of last stand. You know, he's not going gently into his post-career. Uh, it was also an interesting year because we begin to see him transitioning or thinking about what the next stage of his life would be. By now, he was already beginning to get involved in civil rights. He knew Dr. King and had worked with him on some things. 
if, if we think just briefly, uh, and maybe this is more for the high view, but it applies to 1956, when, when Robinson came in, in in 1946, when he played with the Montreal Royals, Martin Luther King was 18 years old and had never given a public speech. When Robinson is retiring in 1956, we're deep into the Montgomery bus boycott. So you're seeing those 10, 11 years, wh- how much has changed, what has happened with Robinson symbolically and sometimes actually right in the middle of, of everything that, that's going on. So that's sort of what led me to that year. Wow. Okay. So I, I, I want to go to those, those, um, those uh, big questions. So let's just talk about 1972 and, and then let's have the larger conversation. Okay, great. So 72, which is the metaphorical winter, um, that ends up being the year that, that, that Robinson died. And as your intro pointed out, that's 50 years ago this, this year. Um, but it was also a really important year. After retiring from baseball in 56, Robinson was not involved in baseball. He had hoped to get a managing job initially, then he didn't get it. Then he was sort of distanced from the sport. He wasn't happy with certain things that were happening in baseball, and he kind of drifted away and got more into political activity, uh, economic empowerment activity, various things in his life. But in early part of 72, an old Dodgers teammate of his, Gil Hodges, died. And Robinson went to that funeral and there saw a bunch of his old teammates and old baseball people for the first time in a long time. And he was sort of repatriated into the game. And that year, he was really failing. He had severe diabetes and a lot of complications from that. He sort of re-engaged with the Dodgers, who now had moved out to Los Angeles, and appeared at an event for the Dodgers, first time he'd been on a baseball field since his retirement. Then he spoke at the World Series that year. There was something sort of, you know, Odyssean about, I guess. He was coming home uh, at the end, right before his death. So it was, it was a powerful year for many reasons, and he remained extremely active. As I said, he was speaking on the, uh, on the field at the World Series just nine days before he would die in late October. So it was a very powerful year and also a way to look at his, his post-career life through that lens. And, and if I remember correctly, it was at that game, um, sort of like one of the last comments he said in his remarks were, I hope one day on the third base, the coaching line there, that I'll see a, a black baseball, a, a black manager there. And then, he, as you said, he died shortly thereafter. Uh, Kostya, talk about being the first is hard. Um, did Jackie Robinson have a support system? Did his, te- did his teammates um, have any idea what he was going through? Did he keep any teammates close? Yeah, so the, the most important person in his, in his support system was Rachel Robinson, who's still with us, will turn 100 in July. Um, they married in 1945, and she was there with him all the time. And, and it, you can't overstate how much she meant to him both she was a calming influence they would talk about how their home was kind of a haven um at the end of days which could be tough so that you can't overstate that but he did you know of course we 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 hear and know about there were teammates who were uh, uh, not accepted who didn't want to necessarily play with it might not have been, it, it wasn't personal it was they didn't want to play on an integrated team but but that that ended fairly quickly um, partly through the help of Pee Wee Reese, who was, uh, and Jackie, as you mentioned in 1972, exactly what you said when he pointed out no, uh, there were no black managers. Earlier in that same talk, he thanked Pee Wee Reese, 
who for helping him um, and for being such a, a, a support system for him in that in that same discussion there. And Reese came from Louisville, um, and went, and they would play sometimes in Cincinnati. The Dodgers would, and Reese was a big because of it near to Louisville, he was a big hero there. And recent power of bringing him in and totally accepting him, you couldn't do anything just as a baseball player, but respect Robinson for the way he played and his skill level. But also, they really respected that he was doing this under that kind of pressure. So, Stevie Reese was a really close figure. There were a couple of pitchers, Ralph Branca and Carl Erskine, who were uh, people that he would talk to and be with. When he later on, there were some more African Americans came onto the team. There's a pitcher named Don Newcomb, who Robinson had an interesting, good relationship with. Also with Roy Campanella, uh, a very famous, excellent black uh, catcher. Although it's not necessarily true that Robinson was closest with the black players on the team. His, his closest friends were Reese, Branca, Erskine, and a couple of other players over the years. Um, and, and yeah, so and without their help. Uh, well, he could he could have he would have made it anyway, but they they made it they made the transition a little bit easier that he knew he was kind of safe in there in his own dugout. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, I, uh, last year, last December, I interviewed um, Rex Miller and Sam Pollard um, about their documentary Citizen Ash about Arthur Ashe, and about Arthur Ashe is the great the tennis great. His journey from being reticent to get involved in the civil rights movement to waiting until he had enough stature to then start speaking out and getting involved in the movement. And I'm wondering, also because of the the fear of what that might do to white fans, white tennis fans. So now we're talking about Jackie Robinson in baseball. Decades earlier, did having white fans make Jackie Robinson reticent to get involved? Or was he always itching to get involved, but because of that agreement you talked about um, when he first got to the major leagues, was it that agreement that kept him on the sidelines, if you were, when it comes to the civil rights struggle at the time? It, it's really a, a great way to frame it and think about it. I, um, I, I don't think there was any part of the agreement that sort of extended to, specifically to, um, don't talk about things, don't get involved in things. But I do think that Robinson was kind of new to the arena and he wasn't immediately comfortable in it, right? He was this great baseball player. He was certainly uh, a very intelligent man with, with, you know, a thoughtful person, but he wasn't necessarily an orator or an intellectual in that sense and didn't uh, ask to be or want to be. So he was a little cautious. And, and again, we look at 1949, he was offered a, a newspaper column that might have been ghostwritten, but he would have you know, overseen the content. And he didn't want to do it, much to your point, because he didn't want to alienate people or, or maybe say the wrong thing. That began to change. And in the early 50s, his activity first began simply by commenting on stuff or talking about stuff such as Brown versus Board or ongoing segregation issues at his locker after games. With, with reporters, something that Roy Campanella, for example, never did, uh, never wanted to do. Um, and, and it extended from there. And he, began, he got a little more involved with the NAACP and did some fundraising. He sort of went in almost appropriately with, with uh, a little bit of caution and a little bit gradually. Um, and he went in 1956. He was awarded the Spingarn Medal, which is a medal from the NAACP, which goes to someone who's um, helped 
in civil rights, and, and that was the first time it had gone to an athlete ever. It had gone to people like Thurgood Marshall and any number of, of people you might you might think of. Um, so that was kind of a, a signal that he was beginning to make that transition uh, to becoming much more active, which he was particularly after his retirement. But, Kostya, as a baseball player with white fans, did it give him a certain amount of credibility, influence, that maybe other major figures in the civil rights movement didn't have? Yes. And I think one thing to understand is if you were a kid watching Jackie Robinson, and particularly like kids in Brooklyn, say, where he played. Brooklyn, of course, was not segregated, but it was sort of self-segregated. If you lived in a Jewish neighborhood or an Italian neighborhood or Irish neighborhood, it wasn't integrated. You didn't see a lot of black people around you or Latino people. You, you, you just didn't mix that as much. But you saw Robinson, you saw the way Ebbets Field was, where you can have a white family next to a black family cheering for the Dodgers, cheering for, um, cheering for Robinson, cheering for Duke Snyder or any other Dodger uh, together. And it, 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 there's no way you can almost teach that if you're a 10 and 11 year old kid. When they found out, those kids, and this is a part of the book, one of those kids was a fellow named Ira Glasser, who went on to become uh, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union for 25 years. And he will tell you to this day that the reason he, he chose that life was because of watching Jackie Robinson play and seeing that. Um, mm. You saw how what a player he was. No teacher in school telling you whatever they tell you can have the impact of seeing your guy. You know, you love a player the way kids love a, a sports star or a musician or whatever it is. And, and and that commitment is there without having to be told what's right or wrong. So when those kids found out that Robinson couldn't stay with the team in St. Louis, for example, couldn't stay in the same hotel, they were incensed. They didn't even know necessarily they were taking a, a stand for civil rights. They're like, that's my guy. What do you mean he can't stay in the same place? That's, uh, so the the power of that can't be understated, that he, that he had that as a vehicle, a way to communicate simply by being such a such a good player such a having such a high standard on the field mm -hmm. and that's his impact on on white kids talk about the impact of jackie robinson not just on black kids but black people all over the country yeah i mean i think that for so many people he uh, well certainly in the baseball world there's lots of people such as hank aaron um who, who talk about seeing jackie robinson gave them just allowed them to think that that could be me. I could do that. Right? There's any number of, of people who thought that. But throughout the country, again, as you pointed out, this is long before Arthur Ashe. It's long before when he's coming in. It's before Rosa Parks. It's before a lot of the signature events. And it's changed things, having, having him play in this venue. There, there may have been no other place that was so desegregated as Ebbets Field in, in the late 1940s, right? Uh, certainly not many. Um, right. So I think it, it gave people just a way, it gave people a sense of hope. And I think that that, if I jump, jump quickly to his funeral, by that time, mm -hmm. was many years later, and he sort of wasn't at the forefront of the movement anymore. And I had Gerald Early, who's this great uh, scholar, was saying, you know, we, we knew about Robinson, but he was kind of my dad's hero. And they didn't know mm -hmm. how he'd be received at that funeral. And when he, when they left Riverside Church for that funeral, there were thousands of people on the street, Jonathan, along 125th Street in, in uh, Harlem, 
thousands more at the bridge, thousands more waiting at the gravesite in Brooklyn because of what he had meant to them. And this was largely African-American people, but a mixed crowd. But um, he meant so much to so many people. He was a sort of, you know, bright light of hope at a time when there wasn't as much of that as there should have been. Mm -hmm. Um, Jackie Robinson was a Republican which, you know, by today's standards might make people's head ex heads explode because the Republican Party today is not like the Republican Party was back then. And one of my uh, old mentors, Evelyn Cunningham, who is a former journalist, uh, Pittsburgh Courier reporter, famed black woman journalist during the civil rights era, she went to work for um, Governor Nelson Rockefeller who put her on Jackie Robinson's staff. When, he, when Jackie Robinson worked for him. But then Jackie Robinson left the Republican Party because of Barry Goldwater. Why, why did he do that? So he initially, he, would, he, would, he tended to be conservative, obviously not in civil rights matters, but in general, he, he was sort of pro-military. He was economically conservative. He had a lot of the things that would line up with sort of a traditional uh, conservatism. But right before Goldwater, or somewhat before Goldwater, in the 1960 election, he supported Richard Nixon, uh, the Republican candidate against Kennedy, the Democratic candidate. And this was largely because of the ongoing influence of the Dixiecrats, right? We remember in those years, George Wallace, Strom Thurmond, uh, Robert Byrd, Bull Connor, like the, some of the staunchest, most active segregationists were Democrats. And Robinson felt that Kennedy hadn't disavowed them enough. Um, and Kennedy probably felt that he sort of did, that he needed their votes. They needed their states to, to, to help him get elected. But it was too much for Robinson. He couldn't, he couldn't accept it, so he supported Nixon. Um, then when, when Goldwater came in with you know, far more right-wing and a shift had begun to happen now in the Democratic Party as a whole and the Republican Party, he was not going to support Barry Gold, Goldwater by any means. Um, he did align with with Rockefeller, as you said. He was he was sort of kind of a centrist, and as he put, as you say, you know, being a Republican and being a Democrat didn't necessarily mean that you were this far apart, right? You might have been that far apart um, in those days. So uh, yeah, that's where he tended to be. He did support Hubert Humphrey in 1968. Um, so he 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 would go back and forth, kind of depending on who he felt was speaking speaking to him. That's one thing that the American people have not stopped doing, <laughs> is going back and forth, um, depending on the candidate. We've got a little bit of time left. I'm going to smash two questions into one. Um, one, what's something you discovered about Jackie Robinson that surprised you in the research of the book? And two, what is it about Jackie Robinson and his story that is so enduring? I think that, you know, he, he's a... He's a Unlike any other figure, for some of the things we spoke about, right, he wasn't uh, an orator or a great speaker, obviously, in the way Dr. King was, in the way Malcolm X was, in the way Adam Clayton Powell or whoever we want to pick. So, so what was so impressive is just his way of going about things. That's so, that is an enduring thing. The title of the book being true is also something that I sort of came to feel and think about Robinson that he, he had a sort of incredible consistency through a lot of disruption in his life to his mission and his effort and his conviction, but also to his, his own contradiction. And that touches on what we just said about politically, he, he might change his mind, or I, I kind of believe this, but I also believe that. And he owned it in a way that I think 
impresses me. I think we all have contradictions in ourselves that sometimes we want to admit and sometimes we don't. Um, and that sort of uh, trueness, for lack of a better word, really came through. And I hadn't quite, as somebody who you know been around, thought a lot about him um, over the years, I hadn't quite sort of understood that or or come to that realization until I really got into the book. So true is one word um, that you, that you would use to describe J.K. Robinson. Um, leaving that aside, um, if you could not use true as the word to describe Jackie Robinson, what would it be? One word. Committed. I and almost said determined. I almost said determined. So I'm, I'm sneaking in a second word there. Um, <laughs> Committed, determined. All right, I'll give you those two in the little bit of time that we have left. To explain why. He, he, you start off talking about what, what it was to be the first. He saw that he had that opportunity, which kind of came to him. He earned it. He deserved it. But he put his arms around it and was committed to the cause, was aware from the beginning, I am Jackie Robinson. The things I do and the way I matter. Um, and he was determined to use that power, that influence to affect change. And to uh, and, and that's what he did, you know. And and he and he he didn't he didn't bat shy away from it. He didn't shrink um, from difficult situations. Uh, and and that was true both as an athlete, his approach as an athlete, and his approach as a human being are all very much the same and wrapped up. So uh, that's really it. He 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 was unwavering as, as another word to use. He was sort of focused on what he was going to do. The key that I take away from that, um, I love the way you said it. He knew who he he knew who he was, and he knew the power of what it meant to be Jackie Robinson, and um, used it for good. Costia Kennedy, author of True: The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. I enjoyed being with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs go to WashingtonPostLive.com.